This podcast is a member of WGPRN, WildGamesProductions.com. Welcome, folks, to yet another episode of Darker Days Podcast, episode number 10. It is I, Vince, here, along with Mark. Mark, how you doing this evening? I'm doing great, Vince. Double figures, double figures. Who'd have thought it, eh? We finally Back did when it. all we had was one small box of zombie fire ants and a lot of empty promises about World of Darkness Online. And now look, here we go. Fantastic. Remember, I can remember those emails back and forth. What should we call the show? What should we call the show? <laughs> I went to look for that the other day. Uh, some some price choices on that. <laughs> some real good ideas. Well, yeah, we'll have to tell the story how we settled on uh, darker days one day. But on to bigger and better things. We have a special special guest with us tonight, Mister Stu Wilson. Stu, how you doing tonight? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Glad to have you. Welcome tonight. aboard, Stu. Great to have you here. Yeah. Great good to be stuff. here, guys. Still, you want to give us a little uh, background on uh, how you started in gaming so our listeners are get a little more familiar with you? Um, yeah, I've been gaming for a few too many years than I care to remember. But <laughs> I actually got my start writing for White Wolf shortly after the whole launch of the New World of Darkness. The first book I did was Law of the Forsaken, which was one of the first books out mm-hmm. for Werewolf. And that was all... It was a bit of a crazy time because writers were being recruited before anything about the new games had really been announced. So it was all a bit hectic working from pre-production drafts and that, but it was good fun. And I must have done something someone liked because they just kept hiring me. <laughs> well, that's a good, that was a good sign, isn't it? <laughs> cool. Uh, well, tonight we got an action-packed show, and Mark, let's start off. Why don't you reach down to that mailbag and tell me what you got this week? It's empty. Bloody Mark. hell, it's empty. No mails. Not one. That's just great, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you, I'm not looking at that bloody spam folder again. That's horrible. Um, well, actually, they're having quite a few mails, uh, but I can't talk about them. Uh, we're in negotiations with another potential guest for an upcoming show, um, so I've got to keep that hush-hush for a little while yet, but that should be very cool if it comes together. Um, so it's been uh, a quiet week for my refreshing finger. Um, gets plenty of rest, which is always nice. All you people better start working uh, out there. Yeah, exactly. People with lives. I really don't know how they do it. Um, do you want to say hello to our, to our new members? Uh, hello to Kim Possible, the coolest username yet. Excellent. Uh, to Hello to Chernobyl Peace Prize, <laughs> which is the funniest username there. And also hello to some guy calling himself Digital Raven. Uh, yeah, hello. Hello. <laughs> we don't know who that is. <laughs> we don't know who that is. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, let's get on to network news. I love it. That intro piece is longer than the news itself. It's really good. <laughs> hey, well, you know, we try here at Darker Days, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, so 
Looks like in the news we still have our network shows you can listen to on WGPRN now playing with Matt and Olivia Buffington. And that site is uh, mbuffington.podbean.com. He should be having another episode up real shortly. I know he was having some... Uh, it was not actually having problems. He was waiting on uh, reviewing a certain movie. So, What else we got, Mark? Mm. Uh, also, um, uh, the other Mark with his show Liquid Weird, and you can find that at uh, liquidweird.net. Um, extremely cool. Uh, he's just busy uh, prepping some uh, some uh, reports from Dragon Con, as I recall. Uh, I think that's what's next up for him, so I'll be uh, looking forward to seeing that when it's out. Oh, definitely interested uh, in that. Yeah, cool. And also wanted to mention uh, Matt Buffington. In addition to uh, the Now Playing podcast, uh, Matt's recorded uh, a segment called Lost Lore for the Dark Day show. And this is going to find its home in our very first waddling, um, our miniature World of Darkness podling. First one soon to be released, uh, along with some other cool content too. Um, so thanks for that, Matt. We haven't forgotten about it, um, and it'll be hitting the airwaves sometime soon. Now, Mark, shouldn't we call it like a Darkling or <laughs> a Dayling? Yeah. Uh, yeah, hmm. <laughs> I think we should have another competition and another box of fire ants goes to the person who comes up with the uh, the best possible name for it. <laughs> True. But uh, speaking of polls, we did have a poll on our forums, and you users, uh, users, why well, keep saying users? I'm a stupid computer person, I am. Listeners out there. The have, uh, listeners, yes. Have voted and decided for us to stay on our bi weekly format. So after this show, we'll be back on our bi weekly format. And uh, Mark is putting the hammer down and making sure we're getting back on the schedule. As I've thrown us way off the schedule now. I came up with a very complicated, involved way to get us back on, which involves recording shows and then sitting on them for a week. Um, so this one is going to be consigned to the vaults for seven days, and then uh, we'll be appearing, uh, well, shortly thereafter. Definitely. And There's uh, a master plan. There's a long-term plan involved here, and uh, come end of October, you guys will see why, but uh, we'll keep that one under wraps for now. Yes, we got something special coming. No, I'm just kidding. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, Mark, I did get something for you. Uh, it was in my mail, and uh, I think you'll want to listen to this. Take a listen. Go on, then. Good evening. This is Beckett, and you're listening to the Darker Days podcast brought to you by Wild Games Productions Radio Network. A podcast about everything World of Darkness, both old and new, delve into the secrets and unearth the mysteries, or just see what the shadowy side of gaming might have to offer you. <laughs> oh, Beckett, my man. Excellent. Yeah, I know. That's I sweet. That was great. I had to play that on the show. Oh, just because Beckett didn't get enough call-outs last show, Beckett, Beckett, Beckett. There, how you go. <laughs> A bucket of Beckett's. There A you go. A bucket of Beckett's. All right, I think that'll wrap up the network news. Do we have any White Wolf news this week? I didn't really see anything new out there. No, they've all been out partying and uh, getting themselves completely uh, drunk at various cons in the last weeks, if the photos online or anything to be believed. Um, so nothing, uh, nothing from them in uh, in the offing. Um, so yeah, we'll uh, we'll see what comes of that in the next show. And there was uh, as yet nothing to be revealed about the world of uh, darkness online. Um, so we're keeping our eyes peeled for that. Uh, it seems that there weren't as many expected announcements as we thought at the uh, PAX uh, convention the other week. So uh, we're still waiting to see what uh, the heavens send our way. Hopefully we'll hear something soon about that. Uh, mm. Well, mm. Let's move on to uh, everybody's favorite segment and Mark's best, best, best segment where he finds the stuff I don't know, but... It's a secret. Yes. Yes, secret frequency, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and 
I actually ran across more things than I could handle uh, this week. So rather than spend the uh, section talking about one particular topic in excruciating detail, uh, I'm going to take three short nuggets and just pitch them out at you in rapid-fire format. And we're starting off with the mystery of the Paradox Stones. Now, those of you who tuned into our episode zero inaugural 10-minute show way, way back mm. may have heard me mention these when I was talking about the kinds of things that were going to appear on the secret frequency. The Paradox Stones is, uh, as always, a real story. Residents up in northern England, uh, this is about a year or so ago, they were puzzled by the appearance of small carved stone heads that were left lying around town. Uh, these things were carved like the archaic green man that you sometimes see on uh, churches and other monuments here uh, in Britain. Uh, and they included a little rhyme, uh, which was twinkle, twinkle, like a star, does love blaze less from afar. And the word paradox carved into the stone. It was all high-quality stone and workmanship. These were found dotted around a couple of small towns. Uh, and when you examined uh, CCTV footage of uh, the event, you could sometimes see a guy rush up, deposit the stone, and run away again. Now, for fans of mage, this one is blindingly obvious. Uh, clearly, it's a hapless mage who's been struck down by a particularly humiliating paradox flaw that requires him to sit there in his sanctum and laboriously make these things by hand, possibly probably due to a massive botch with the matosphere or an attempt to seduce somebody with magic, perhaps. Now, you could use this kind of thing as an inspiration for an odd paradox flaw that affects mages in your gang. Um, often, storytellers are stumped when they're trying to find out, uh, come up with innovative ways to depict the effects of paradox in-game, and people tend to default to the wild, to the crazy, to the supernatural over the top. But this is a good example of how you can get a similar strange effect just by using real-world oddness, and fits the bill just as well. Um, I used something similar to this in one of my own games. I had a mage called Gideon who spent a lot of time messing around with the time sphere. Uh, setting up his own little temporal paradoxes left, right, and center. And a particularly powerful paradox spirit called Wrinkle eventually came for him one day and took him away and set him off to work behind the scenes of the universe with a small needle and thread stitching up all the holes he'd made in existence. Uh, and then eventually, after however many millions of years of this menial task, deposited him back in his own timeline. And this all occurred off camera. When the character came back on scene, uh, his paradox flaw was that any woven material would unravel when he came into touch with it. And as a bonus, I gave him five dots in needlework. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you know, you've got to balance the, uh, the good with the bad. Uh, as it turns out, the paradox stones in the, in the real story were in fact a publicity stunt by a young uh, local artist who was creating uh, them to sell and his studio was called Paradox Carvings. So the story turned out to be not particularly exciting after all, but for the purpose of the secret frequency I thought it was an interesting little nugget to pitch your way. Second on our rapid fire list today is the subject of delayed mail. Now we've all had our mail arrive a few days late, you know, the postcard that you send uh, doesn't arrive until a week and a half after you get back from vacation. Uh, what about two weeks late, a month late, a year late, two years, ten years, 150 years late? Wow. These things have all, yeah, they've all happened. Uh, okay, the 150 years was a message in a bottle um, as opposed to a real letter, but, you know, you get the picture. Um, so where do these letters go in the interim, and why? Now, the obvious answers for the real world, they fell behind the cupboard in the sorting room and didn't get found again until the place was being fixed up five years later. Or uh, you forgot to post it, or it arrived and got lost and sent to the wrong address, and blah, 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 blah. 
For the world of darkness, of course, we want the less obvious answers. Perhaps the letters fell through cracks into other worlds. Perhaps they got caught in a time loop. Perhaps the letters weren't delayed. Uh, instead, they were sent from the past directly to the present, skipping over the intervening years. Uh, perhaps reality is actually composed of shifting reefs and unstable archipelagos of causality, and what you think was 15 years ago is actually only two and a half minutes for someone else. Now, how do you use these in-game? Well, let's just pick one of these options. Um, let's look at the idea of letters being sent from the past straight to the present. You can use this as a fantastic plot hook for all sorts of coolness. Uh, the original sender could now be dead or aged or lost in walls of time, and the characters need to find them or act on whatever message the letter contains. And what if the letters were to start arriving from the future, not from the past? What if you received a letter from your future self warning you of some impending disaster? What would you do? I know what I'd do. I'd put return to sender on it and see what happens. But that's just me. I'm contrary like that. Yeah. Um, and finally, we're going to take a little trip down to Devon, um, which is one of the fairer counties here in England, uh, specifically the village of Woolsey and the Farmer's Arms pub. Uh, the owner of the Farmer's Arms wanted to expand the bar area in his pub, so he demolished a rear wall. And at about floor level, under what had been a fireplace, they found two enormous slate slabs, which took them several days to shift away. They were immensely heavy and broke in half when they were moved. Underneath, they found, perfectly preserved, an artesian well uh, over 20 foot deep, which apparently dated from Saxon times. And then the weird stuff started happening. The gas supplies to the beer pumps down in the cellar kept going on and off. The barman's wife was pushed hard by some invisible force and knocked to the floor. A waitress was hit in the head by wine glasses flying off a shelf, and from the back of the shelf, mind you, uh, from behind several other glasses, not just teetering on the edge. Doors opening and closing of their own in front of the barman's eyes, bells ringing, objects vanishing and then reappearing days later. A clock flew off the wall. Proper serious haunted goings-on. The, uh, the real McCoy. Uh, legend has it the victims of highwaymen were always brought to be laid out in the bar of the pub before they were buried, while captured highwaymen themselves were imprisoned in the back room before taken to the local jail. So, haunted wells, haunted pubs, dime a dozen. Now, what I think is the interesting thing here, and the thing that you can use in a game, is the apparent reason behind this haunting. Uh, the well was shown to a guy called Steve Jones, who is apparently Britain's first pagan magistrate, although I'm pretty sure he was in the Sex Pistols. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Steve asked when he was told of the story he asked whether the barman had found one or more large stones covering the head of the well well yes he was told and then he merely smiled and said that he wasn't surprised because such stones were usually placed over wells to keep the spirits in now again the use in game here is clear hauntings are all well and good but they're even better if you can tie their manifestations to the actions of the characters or to those connected to the characters. Uh, maybe the characters are responsible for the removal or breaking of these stones, not being sure what they are. Or maybe one of their family members has done it, or a friend or loved one. Maybe the characters are going to be the only ones able to figure out or understand what has happened. Or they might be the only ones able to do something about it. Uh, they may be forced or asked or quested to remake these binding stones or find those who can if they're not able to do it themselves. Or if rebinding is impossible, they might have to lay the spirits to rest by some other method. So rather than some random haunting, haunting without a strong background, you could use this as the cause and solution of ghostly manifestations in your hunter game, for example. 
And after all, a pub is the best place to find strong spirits. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, thank you. I'll be here all week. Please try the veal. (laughs) Oh, boy, Mark. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Does that close things up this week, Mark? I I make that a a three out of three there on the secret frequency. Um, If if our listeners would prefer to... uh, have these more smaller bite-sized pieces uh, post up at our forums or drop me an email at uh, darkerdaysradio at gmail.com or uh, drop us a line on the forums and let us know if you prefer the longer more expanded uh, overview of, of one particular subject at a time uh, we can look at that too but uh, let us know uh, which particular format hits the buttons for you and you can always visit us uh, by going to darkerdays.tk <laughs> I was taking a little tip from you, Mark. You know how we were saying we were going to have just pauses and emails and sputters from you know, Skype last time? That's what we were going to do. Yes, indeed. So, Stu, yeah, you were telling me it... about uh, something you had for the uh, secret frequency before. You want to give us a little uh, heads up on that again? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, seems like every time I go on holiday, we always end up going somewhere vaguely gothic, you know. We'll go on mm. ghost tours around... York down into, even if we're just staying here in Edinburgh, we'll go down into the tunnels and the caverns under the city. Um, we go to Paris, we go down into the catacombs, which are used oh, they're great. as... Yeah. A, they're just a giant... For people who haven't been, it's a giant underground labyrinth where they've extracted all the stone used to build the city and they've just stacked the dead there. So there's just thousands and thousands Probably six million. Is that six six million down there? Yeah. Yeah. Six six million bodies broken down into bones and just stacked in piles. Um, the other the other one. Um, we were over in Prague a couple of years ago and we took a trip out to see the ossuary at Sedlak, which is most famous for being decorated entirely with the bones of people laid to rest there. Um, in the 13th century, we had uh, the priests went on a pilgrimage and brought back some earth from the mound at Golgotha, making it an incredibly holy place awesome. for people to be laid to rest. And so now there's anywhere between forty and 70,000 people in this tiny, tiny chapel. So, And the only way they could store all of these bones was to use some of them for decoration so you've got a chandelier made of bones you've got a coat of arms on one of the walls made entirely out of bones um i sent vince a link to some photos of that and i'll put it up on the forums for you please please Mm, yeah great now how could you use this in a game i don't know why don't you tell us go to the forums and uh post up how you would use this in your game Sounds like a plan, right, Mark? Absolutely. I used the Paris catacombs in a, a mage game a while way back. I had them looking for a, a bunch of Sluar changelings, and of course uh, they wound up coming across them down in the, in the Paris catacombs. Uh, the, the, just to, you know, to, just, to say, oh, there are six million dead down there, all stacked up. It's a stupendous number, but when you actually you see these things in the in the flesh, pardon the pun, uh, it's outrageous. They, I don't know if it's quite to the same extent as the uh, as the the skull chandeliers, but 
the columns and pillars and archways are all bedecked with skulls and there's these little homilies about uh you know the the, the power of death over the living inscribed into the walls here and there and yeah it's really really quite fantastic wow sounds like speaking of uh games mark how have you been playing your game or are you still on hiatus for now Well, ladies and gentlemen, looks like Skype is screwing up yet again. No. Oh, there's Mark. Good. (laughs) I'm here. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you fine. Thank you. Okay. Um, Yeah, my game is on hiatus until about the 15th of of this month. So in a week or two, we'll be back at the uh, the gaming table. And should be by the next show, I'll have an after-game report as to where we've been there. So, yeah, that's something to look forward to for me at least. Definitely, and uh, my game is going pretty well. We started the prelude last time. Everyone had a fun time, but I'll describe that a little bit later. Oh, yeah, you had your uh, your opening session. Cool. Uh, looking forward to hearing about that. They had a blast. Well, that'll end That's our secret frequency for this week. Once again, just go to the site, darkerdays.tk. <laughs> and mark our email. Radio at gmail.com drop us a line um, because my uh, finger is getting lonely that didn't come across quite the way I wanted it to but uh, you know what I mean (laughs) god our listeners are going to be all over that one Mark (laughs) after the felching remark last episode I think they're fine (laughs) okay well uh, I'm going to go to our classic World of Darkness segment uh, like Mark likes to call it Mark we're going to continue our discussion that you had spoke starting last week about lowering popula- ah, population in a game. Now, Stu, if you were playing yeah. in a game, how would you handle lowering population? Would you, you know, tone down, say, like, if you were playing a mage game, what would your ratio of mages be in your world? I think, I think really it depends on the city or the place where you're playing and the flavor of the place. But one, one trick I've found really rather useful to convey the sense of a lowered population, even if you've actually got a much bigger one, is just to focus on the people that the characters are interacting with for this particular story, and then when they move on to the next story, they sort of get knocked by the wayside until the players themselves decide to go back. That way, you can scale back the effects of large political organizations in order to present a sort of more fo- a game more focused on the smaller immediate needs of the players while still leaving yourself the option for the bigger political games going forwards. Huh. Right, so you're, you're leaving certain areas kind of undefined and you're moving into those as you need to. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very much if the... If in a mage game the... Cabal doesn't care for concilium politics, then I don't define the concilium. I define the mages and the other supernatural beings that they're going to be interacting with. And later on, if they want to go to the concilium, then I have a big folder full of notes for people I could populate it with. Sure. It's, so, you, you, it's a, so then you, you still have the sort of conceit, though, that the concilium sort of exists in the background. So if someone were to say, oh, is there a concilium here? You'd be like, yeah, 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 they're over there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they right. exist, but until they're actually brought into the story, it's not particularly important whether they exist or not. It's not on camera. It's, it's right. all a bit sort of fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. 
Um, well, what we want to do here is uh, we talked about a couple of shows ago, as like Vince says, the, uh, just the general idea of lowering the population of supernaturals within your game. So what I want to get down to now is some actual practical advice. How can we put this into practice and throw some examples out for uh, a mage, uh, mage the Ascension game? Um, now, one of the, the central conflicts in Mage is between the traditions and the technocracy. Um, and for this to work as, it, as it's described in the books, you kind of need large numbers of mages and, and, and technocrats, um, up to the amount of several thousand on each side on a global scale with varying levels of power. Now, if you if you go for a lower population and, and you actually are stripping the numbers as opposed to obscuring areas of the map, these social groups no longer become viable. There's no point in having a celestial chorus tradition if there's only half a dozen such mages in the UK. Um, so it's much better to use different kinds of mage societies. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at how we can change the kinds of social groupings in mage uh, while still keeping that central conflict intact. Um, and... One of the uh, the best sources of inspiration uh, for this is um, the Hunter the Vigil game for New World of Darkness, which breaks the game styles into small groups, medium-sized groups, and large-scale conspiracies. Uh, and that's definitely worth looking at for a, a way to adapt Mage the Ascension to uh, the same kind of feel. Now, just looking at it from the individual level... Uh, if you cast your protagonists or your antagonists just as individuals as opposed to members of groups or large-scale conspiracies, you can, you can take a look at these individual mages who have exercised considerable influence on the world around them, yet were just individuals. Maybe they had small cults around them or cronies or minions. Uh, but at the end of the day, you're talking about just a single guy. And looking at history and fiction, you, you, know, you might look at characters like John Dee, um, who was a reputed magician in the court of uh, Queen Elizabeth, I recall. Or uh, more recently, uh, good old Alistair Crowley. Uh, yes, now, without wishing to, really. yeah, I don't want to get into the old World of Darkness game of uh, trying to find out which supernatural group Alistair Crowley belonged to, because if you read the books, he belonged to about 19 different ones at the same time. But again, you have a lone guy who may or may not have been a mage, but yet nevertheless exercised and exerted a considerable amount of influence on the world around him. Um, looking at, say, something like uh, the cigarette smoking man from the X Files, specifically in the latter seasons when the, the syndicate has kind of fallen apart. He's this one lone guy but with a lot of contacts in government and special forces and, and in various networks who's able to tap huge amounts of influence more or less on his own. Um, or if you're familiar with the inaugural Mage of the Ascension adventure, Luma Fate, there's a character in that, uh, a doctor called Ken Himeitsu, who you can take as a, a single antagonist who controls a genetic research facility uh, and he, he need not be in the superior of any large number of mages just the, the fact that you've got a, a powerful mage on his own he can exert influence over a fairly large area of your chronicle um, you can scale it up of course to uh, to more small groups um, and looking at some sample antagonist groups um, as regular listeners will know, I have a complete hard-on for Clive Barker and all his works. So if I'm going to look at, uh, say, his book Imagica, you can take a, a group out of that called uh, the Tabula Rasa. Now, they're a great riff on the anti-magic-using aspect of the, of the technocracy. Uh, the Tabula Rasa has this, this principle... Ma uh, methodology of keeping the British Isles safe following various magical disasters in the past. Um, 
you can tie them down as they are in the novel to a single family. So it's less an organization um, as as much a generational thing. And they need not even be mages. They just need to know about mages and want to stop them. And if they're powerful and wealthy enough, their influence and their money can allow them to employ all manner of servants, from simple bodyguards to spies to paramilitary groups, that kind of thing. Uh, another antagonist group uh, we used in a mage chronicle, we called them the Jade Circle. And they were a small group of infernalists, uh, Nefandi, who would reincarnate into new bodies when they died. And this keeps them as uh, recurring antagonists who then become hard to defeat and allows you to use them frequently without having large numbers of insane evil cultists running about the place. You have a single, single small group that recurs over the course of a long-running chronicle. Um, there's a small group that featured in, I believe, the New World Order sourcebook called the Northern Security Collective. You, you might want to take these and cast them as just a group of half a dozen technocrats scattered across the governments of NATO countries. Uh, and those six people, those six mages in positions of power uh, across the Northwestern Hemisphere is really all it takes to subvert uh, governments and subvert the, the process of policy and politics. And then I mentioned Ken Himitsu and his genetic research programs on Loom of Fate, a small group doing all manner of horrible things. And these various groups, they don't need to be part of huge global conspiracies. They work well enough on their own. Uh, like the New World Order convention book, the various convention books for the other, uh, well, conventions, <laughs> each featured a sample group like this in a chapter at the end. So take a look at those and make them unique. So rather than being an example of a New World Order power group, uh, the Northern Security Collective is the only one of its kind. And that allows it to occupy a very specific and kind of special place in your chronicle without being diluted and duplicated across the map. Now, as for good guys, uh, never mind the antagonists, um, we'll steal another idea from uh, Jiving Clive and look at the idea of the Shoal, which comes from his great secret show book. And they're a tiny group of mages that preserve ancient magical secrets. And you can use this as a, a riff or an analog for the, for the nine traditions. Uh, they draw their members from a number of magical traditions, yet they guard truths that lie behind them all. And this compares well with the Mage of the Awakening game, where real-world magical beliefs are actually corruptions of supernal truths. Um, going back to my own game, we had the Jade Circle as antagonists, and their main foes on the side of the good guys was a group called the Rosedale Fellowship, who established themselves to fight the Jade Circle. Uh, they took the approach of capturing these uh, Jade Circle members when they would reincarnate as babies, and then beheading them, and then binding their spirits into these tiny little shrunken baby heads. Oh, yeah, they're the good guys, really. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> you can expand that further. You know, you could have a local coven of witches if you wanted to incorporate the Rebena in your game. Uh, you could have, an, for the Akashic Brotherhood, you could represent that by a single ancient forgotten dojo of enlightened Shaolin. Uh, yeah, I know that Shaolin wouldn't have a dojo. Okay, so assume me, they'd have a temple, but, you know, there you go. Uh, a cabal of hermetic wizards, uh, a sect of heretical Christians. The point is, if you make these the only examples of their kind, just not one amongst hundreds of similar groups all over the world, you, you preserve the essential conflicts and concepts of the mage game, uh, but without running into the social problems uh, or the, uh, the, the verisimilitude problems that a huge population of mages would give you. Um, and again, looking at the tradition books, especially the revised ones, uh, they all have sample factions within each tradition. So you could use these sample factions as templates for small, isolated groups and preserve the general feel of mage society without bloating its numbers. So if you flip open your revised tradition books and look at the faction sections there, you'll find lots of good inspiration. Uh, finally then, uh, we've mentioned the traditions and the, uh, uh, the technocracy, but what about the, the Nefandi and the Marauders, uh, the other 
two main groups in the Ascension game world. Well, you can keep them more or less as they are. You can use them as solitary foes with much the same effect. You don't have to change much from the canonical setting. You know, Marauders are rarely organized anyway, and the Nefandi are split into all sorts of strange factions and groups. However, um, if you actually take the opposite approach and dial up their population a bit, if you allow the Nefandi to become more organized, they become much more terrifying, because then they will outnumber the regular mages, they'll be better organized and far more powerful. Uh, now, for me, I think that's an interesting revision of the old World of Darkness setting, and it makes the Nefandi a much more potent presence. And it's kind of reminiscent of the cult setting or the version of the World of Darkness that was presented in the Jail of Night series that we looked at way, way back in episode three or four or something. Yeah. Uh, and an alternate uh, source of inspiration beyond uh, the World of Darkness is a game called Unknown Armies, which is just utterly awesome. A lot of people have called it Mage Done Right. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's true, but it's definitely Mage Done Well. Um, so that's one uh, worth looking at. And like I mentioned before, uh, the New World of Darkness hunted the Vigil game with its uh, compacts and conspiracies. Uh, definitely worth looking at. Wow. And uh, speaking of Hunter, uh, that brings us nicely onto our uh, New World of Darkness section, uh, Vince. Yeah, I've been enjoying the New World of Darkness for since what well, came out in 2004, I believe, was the day that it was debuted at. I've really been enjoying mm -hmm. and I'm just hoping that all these rumors about this new, new World of Darkness aren't coming true. Uh, so, now we're going to, we're going to, the review I'm going to look up for us today is Witchfinders. Uh, it's a supplement for the Hunters uh, line. Still, can you tell us what exactly, what parts of the Witchfinders you had your, dipped your hands into and your experience with that book, writing it up? Uh, Witchfinders was a lot of fun. It was the first proper supplement we did for Hunter, and it's the first time we as writers really got a look at just how many compacts and conspiracies and options we could throw in. Um, I got my grubby little hands <laughs> over about half the compacts and conspiracies from the core book, detailing how they deal with witches, with psychics, and with mages, and then got to flesh out the Knights of St. George conspiracy, which was you did that, a great that, deal of fun. That's fantastic, yeah. That was a great deal of fun, because I'm, personally, I'm getting a bit sick and tired of seeing every sort of Christian conspiracy as either loony fundamentalists on the extreme far fringe, or buried somewhere in the Catholic Church. Let the Church of England have a mad conspiracy for a change. There we go. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I wrote up a whole bunch of um, tactics and endowments in the book as well. Huh. So Cool. Well, basically, this is the first supplement for the uh, Hunters of Visual RPG line. Uh, this is definitely was a brilliant idea on White Wolf to make these lines uh, available for everybody. And uh, basically, this book is, like I said, the first book. It tackles uh, this, how to hand, how the hunters handle a supernatural threat. This one happens to focus on witches. You heard me. Witches. Not mages. In fact, you don't even need to own the mage book to use this book. Because it has, an own, it has its own magic system completely worked in there. It's like a dummy's guide for magic. That's what I was talking to you it's earlier. It's good. It's nice. I was talking to you earlier in the uh, week about this, Mark, and I was asking you how similar it was to the mage, because I'm not really familiar with mage at all. And I was asking... Right. Well, I, I just managed to get a copy of the, of the book today, actually, um, and was, I was flipping through it before the show. Um, 
and yeah, the 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 magic section in there is is reminiscent conceptually of the one in Mage of the Awakening. It has some some of the similar structures to it, uh, but it's much less complex and it's much easier for you to pick up and run with. Um, and actually, you could you could use it if you were wanting to use the main Mage the Awakening game, but found some of the the rules in there to be uh, a little bit heavy. You could you could default back to the one that's in uh, Witchfinders, and you'd get a hell of a lot of use out of it. Definitely. Everything in the book is very customizable. Various options for magic uh, lets you customize your own spells, your own rituals, and it lets you easily throw down a witch in your story, whether it be a hunter game or not. I mean, you can use this for a vampire game, a werewolf game. I mean, whatever, you can throw these witches, sorcerers, hex voodoo people into the game, however you want. Uh, the book also gives a deep look in how hunt- hunters interact with each other and how they stalk these witches and kill them and how they stop them over the centuries. They take the compacts and conspiracies from the core book, which Stu said he had worked on most of those, and uh, wrote a hell of a lot of information about them and how you can incorporate them into your game. Each conspiracy gets new endowments, especially focused on hunting down the witches, as well as a bunch of brand new tactics for you to help stalk down the witch and kill it. Uh, we also get three new compacts. We get the Keepers of the Source, which basically, to sum it up, they're hippies who believe... Witches drain power from Mother Earth. <laughs> then we got Division Six, uh, who believe that they are a secret government agency protecting reality. And then we have the Promethean Brotherhood, who sacrifice witches in order to steal their power. That could be an interesting game. I would think if you had your player as part of the Promethean Brotherhood. Hmm. And we get one new conspiracy, uh, the Blasphemous Knights of St. George. And the Knights of St. George receive a fair amount of coverage in this book. I mean, uh, quite a bit, and I know... Stu worked a long time on this, as he said, and I'm grateful for all the information he's put in this book. And also, and That's brilliant. Yeah, definitely. Towards the end of the book, it gives you details on running witches effectively in your chronicle, uh, giving you tips how to, how to, how they act in society, how they hide themselves, how hunters can figure out who they are and how they are. And then we also have, uh, back to the magic system, it's uh, basically described as a gutter magic system basically allows you to replicate their spells and magical powers. It's not like the mage system. Think of it as, uh, well, I don't know, magic light or the Diet Coke of magic, maybe. <laughs> Witches have something called source, in which they use to feed their spells that they cast. Some spells cost source. Other spells need nothing to cast. You can just cast them. They're the minor spells as opposed to the major spells. Uh, details. This book details how the witches... Uh, how the I'm trying to figure out how to explain this. I've lost my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, they use the Hunter Signature City, Philadelphia, and they describe a different way to add the witches into that setting and how you can use it in your setting. If you're using the official Philadelphia setting, so if you want to add a shaman or a Dutch hexmaster or an African-American hoodoo witch, they're all in the back and you can add them in. There's quite a big section on NPCs and antagonists for your story, so you can just plop down the game. Which Mark and I always have praised is always a good thing. Just be able to flip to that book. Boom. There's your uh, MPC. Yep, plug and, and play. Got to be plug, plug and, and play. play. Absolutely. Overall, I think this is a great book. It gives you just enough flavor, background, and even rules to run a new twist to your hunter, mortals, vampire, werewolf, maybe even Promethean game. I give it mm, 9.9 out of 10. What do you give it, Mark? Outstanding. Well, I'm still getting my, my impressions of it, so I'm not going to stick a hard and fast number onto it yet. Um, I've got one question for you, though, Vince. Does it have an index? No comment. 
<laughs> Very poor. <laughs> That's why it's nine point nine. I, I, I liked it. It was good. Um, I, I liked the opening. The uh, the whole kind of beginning that was reminiscent of the Hunter Net and the Walking Dead book from the Old World of Darkness, and yes. that peppered all the way through. I thought that was great. Uh, I liked the overview of magic as seen through real world cults and events. The sort of history of uh, of, of hunting witches section that was really nice. Um, the work that's done. I'm sorry. I guess this is this is a, in no small part your work, Stu. The, the the hooks for the compacts and conspiracies were great, and the the nice St. George were fantastic. Like Vince says, pages and pages of details on this conspiracy. Really nice to see that uh, done in such details. Um, the magic system. Yeah, like I said a few minutes ago. Uh, Great to use, uh, nice and simple, uh, yet surprisingly flexible. And the section that Vince mentioned on using witches and these sort of gutter sorcerers in your game uh, was, uh, I think, uh, applicable to any of the uh, World of Darkness games, old or new, and would fit particularly well in uh, in a Mage Chronicle. Um, just as, as fantastic advice on adding uh, witches and uh, magic users uh, into your Chronicle. Good stuff. Definitely a good pickup. You should go grab it off Amazon or the White Wolf store or uh, get the PDF through drivethroughrpg.com. Stu, is there any chance mm-hmm. of maybe maybe uh, a second book with, along these lines or any talk of that, or you can't say anything about that? I don't I don't know anything about a, another book along these lines. I mean, Witchfinders was kind of the template for the other Hunter books that came later. Slashers, uh, Night Stalkers, and Spirit Slayers all took their cues from Witchfinders. So a lot of the stuff you like, the snippets of fiction detailing the history and the hooks, and of course the new compacts, new conspiracies, and boiled down rules on how to make monsters, that runs throughout the Hunter line. So far I'm only aware of one thing we've not yet that's not yet been released for Hunter, and that's the big book that uh, Chiffel Chuck Wendig's working on, as I believe he mentioned <laughs> last week. Yes. Yeah. Good old Chuck Man Cometh, yeah, episode number nine. Mm-hmm. Download that if you can, folks. Uh, still out there. Still out there. Once again, you can visit us at darkerdays.tk, download all the shows. You can hit Mark up with an email. Mark, what's the email again? Radio at gmail. Dot com. Well, that was a nice pause there. <laughs> yeah, You're liking one. those pauses. <laughs> you, can, you, uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, AlucardD20 at Twitter. And uh, I usually post up some rather boring information, but sometimes I drop some show information in there as there are some rumors up to some upcoming shows that have fluttered around Twitter that I didn't even know about that actually Stu had seen, but I won't comment anymore on that. So you just got to follow me to find out. Ha. Huh. I can check that out. Cool. I must have missed those too. And you can follow Mark uh, if he's not too busy stalking Clive Barker. Oh, leave me alone, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a healthy obsession. What's wrong with it? Nothing at all. Nothing at all. <laughs> all right. Let's move on to uh, the questions and answer period for Mr. Stu Wilson. Stu, are we ready for the questions? Oh, yeah. Bring them on, baby. That's it. We this wraps the show up. That was our questions for this week, folks. Have a good night. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Actually, the first question that comes out into mind, and uh, Chuck Wendig had said something about it last episode, but uh, one of our listeners named Digital Raven, I oh, don't know who that is, some, some guy in our forums, <laughs> and asked, who is Steve Wilson, American Hero? 
Oh man, <laughs> I knew this one was coming. <laughs> I wonder how. I don't know. Blame that digital raven guy. Yeah, Steve Wilson. I'm I'm sorry to say the story behind Steve Wilson is actually a bit boring. Um, I was. Oh. I I hate to tell you, I was um, being interviewed by Ed Healy on RPG Countdown, just giving him a bit of blurb about Armory Reloaded because it was in the top ten for something like the fourth or fifth week after its release, and. Yeah, got a segment recorded, listened to the podcast, and when it went out, I was introduced as Steve Wilson. <laughs> Naturally, a bunch of people on Twitter and on LiveJournal were also listening along and immediately decided that, that I wasn't, in fact, British, as I may sound. I am, in fact, American. My real name is Steve Wilson. I am an American hero, and I am undercover in the UK. <laughs> undermining it for the American people, introducing people to chili cook-offs, cowboys, and astronauts. <laughs> <laughs> well, just because of this that... This thing's just taken on a life of its own since then. Uh, yeah, and I, I actually had found something for you for that. <laughs> this, I guess, would be his theme song. You oh. track down that video on YouTube. Steve Wilson has that perm. <laughs> I can't believe it. that show is so old and so corny, but it just fits so. Well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get on to uh, more serious issues here. Mark, you want to jab right, it at those question, first questions? Yes. Yeah, questions uh, submitted by our listeners on the forums. Uh, first up is uh, Jabbity, who has a couple of questions. Um, Jabbity says, uh, I know I've already contacted you guys on the matter of aspiring game designers with White Wolf, and I wanted to ask Stu what advice he has for such a person. So, Stu, what advice would you have for such a person, someone hoping to break into game design with White Wolf or someone else? First, the first thing I, first bit of advice I always give to anyone who wants to break into game design, writing their own games and actually getting them published, is you have to treat it like a job. You know, this is something you will be working to deadlines, occasionally punishing deadlines, and if you're not willing to take the whole thing seriously as something you are doing to make money and as a business, then, you know, go away, boil things over in your mind for a while until you're ready to make that commitment. Because, you know, when you're designing games, occasionally, yeah, you have to do things, you have to write things that maybe you're not entirely comfortable with doing because of time pressures or simply because of the subject material, but you've still signed a contract say that you are going to deliver this work and you can't drop out. It's You've just got to remember to be professional whenever you're dealing with a game company. Um, I'd also echo a lot of what Eddie said when he was on your fine show about uh, sticking to the writer's guidelines whenever you're coming up with a submission. All the major game companies, all the minor game companies, have submission guidelines posted on their website. If they don't, drop them an email. Ask what they're looking for. Don't just send submissions sight unseen. Often they'll have a non-disclosure agreement or some sort of legal paperwork that they have to go through. So get in touch with them and ask. But... Equally, 
just get in touch. Talk to talk to the people behind the company. Talk to people who write the books you like, who design and develop the books you like. We're people too, you know. Just because I happen to write freelance doesn't put me on some pedestal, you know. I just hang out on gamer forums the same as everyone else. Yeah, we're all we're all fans. So you know, talk to the people, ask what they'd like to see, ask what matters to them, and with any luck, you'll be able to harvest some really cool ideas. And if you work those in to a pitch, and you make that pitch, and it's a confident pitch, and it's and it's obvious that you really love what you're doing, odds are they're going to read it and you're going to hear, if not good news, you're going to get some really good feedback that helps you and you'll be able to build on that feedback and really knock it for six next time. Excellent. Going along with that, expect- never, get dis- never get disappointed by getting a knockback from someone. Give it a month, give it two months, refine your ideas, go to other studios, never stop trying. Cool. That's a good, good, strong advice there, Stu. Uh, you know, especially with the uh, with the invention of the modern electronic internet, uh, designers are much more accessible. So you know, you can uh, hit people up and be like, "Well, you know, here's my idea. What do you think?" And like you say, you can bump into them on the forums or via email. So that's a that's a big improvement, I think, just in the last five to ten years uh, in this field. Oh, massively, yeah. Cool. Um, excellent. Um, Jabbity's second question, uh, he, it's a more of a storytelling, uh, GMing question for you. He wants to know what scale of game are you more interested in personally? Uh, a small scale game with only a few supernatural characters, if any, within a small setting like a neighborhood? Or do you, do you favor more a larger scale game with you know, all sorts of intermingling supernatural beings within a city, for example? Well, this is harkening back to what we had in the GMing advice section about cutting the number of supernaturals mm, exactly yeah generally generally i like to cut down the number of supernatural critters but leave the political systems in place um your advice for example on slicing the number of majors right down is fantastic but in order to still have some of the larger scale traditions versus technocracy you could for example stock a lot of them with the hedge wizards and the psychics presented in sorcerer mm. revised and i yep. i did that for a mage i did that for a mage game the um, i dissolved the traditions down into just their factions each one with maybe 10 or 20 mages and a whole bunch of hedge mages and sorcerers the technocracy remained this gigantic monolith because that's very much part of the whole imagery but again a lot of their members were barely had any power, barely had any understanding, but they were just cogs mm. in this great machine. So you could still have the big politicking whilst keeping the feel of who the characters are and what the characters can do as being a bit rare and a bit special. So it's important to remember that, you know, the characters are the star. The group of characters are the stars of the game. And Absolutely. It's not worth getting too large scale because otherwise you just lose sight of that. So, yeah, I'm kind of in the middle. Why, why can't Porthos come and fix this for us? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, he's too busy flying rocket ships around Jupiter or whatever he was doing. <laughs> 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 okay, cool. 
Uh, let's go on to uh, some of Zorlak's questions. Uh, putting your works aside, Stu, anything that you've done, what is your favorite uh, wad book, New World? Oh, don't make me choose. Oh, come on. I like I like so much. I like so much of this stuff. If you had to grab one off the shelf that you'd like to play, other than something that you've worked on, I mean, what would you pick? Oh, I'm I'm gonna dig back a fair bit, and I'm looking over at my complete shelf full of Wraith books, and uh, I've got to say, Doom Slayers for Wraith. Hmm. Um, uh, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you guys remember that. It's um. Oh yeah. In Wraith, you have the Labyrinth, which at the heart of which resides Oblivion and the Neverborn. And David. And Doomslayers are those ghosts, either brave or stupid, or probably both, enough to voluntarily enter the labyrinth to drag out whatever they can find, and. At the time of its release, a lot of people, I remember, were very shocked because it was kind of taking the D&D dive into the dungeon aesthetic and applying it to Wraith, which up until that point had been heavy on the psychodrama, not so heavy on the killing people and taking their stuff. (laughs) And yet the nature of the labyrinth and the way it reacts to the psychology of all of the beings in in and around it still makes that experience quite uniquely Wraith, and both as a gaming product and as a book to see just how good all these concepts, just how well, sorry, all these concepts can be blended together, that's the one I grab if my house were on fire. Hmm. That's a great book. Yeah, fantastic book, that one. A lot of love for Wraith. Yeah, it's it's a close toss-up between that and um, the New World of Darkness core, but you know I can get the New World of Darkness core anywhere these days. But <laughs> it seems like it's a bit rarer. Definitely a cool. rare book to pick up. I, I bet it cost a pretty penny to uh, pick that up somewhere. Uh, let's see. Zorlak also asks, "What is your favorite non-World of Darkness system? If you had to pick one out there, what would you pick as your favorite other system?" Oh man! I, again, I'm going to say, don't make me choose. I'm a, I'm a lot like um, Eddie again in that I play, I read, and I play a hell of a lot of different types of games. Um, Unknown Armies, as mentioned earlier, is a very powerful contender. But I'm going to go entirely off genre and say um, a game called Truth and Justice. Oh. I'm not sure if you guys have heard about that. It's no, I don't um, know that one. No. It's a um, it's a superhero game, but unlike Champions and all of these other ones where you build what the powers can do, you just write down what the power is, give it a rank, and get on with playing the game. Uh, cool. The guy who guy who wrote it, Chad Dunsacopla, is is a fantastic guy. He obvious he has an obvious degree of love for what he's writing about. Even even coming down to the small blurb on the back cover. It is so obvious that he loves comics, he loves superhero stories, and that bleeds through with pretty much every word he writes. Hmm. Excellent. I have no idea. Did you say Truth and Justice, you said? Yeah. Truth and Justice, yeah. Um, More information on that is um, on 
the publisher's website, which is atomicsockmonkey.com. I'm not being paid for that plug, by the way. Okay. You couldn't make it up. No, definitely not. Actually, I had found a nice little indie game that really reminded me big time of a White Wolf game. Uh, Dread? Have you ever heard of that? With the oh, Jenga yeah, tower, Dread. Or, the, or the other Dread. White Mark? Well, there's there's one there's one called Dread, first book of Pandemonium. That's it. And there's another one just. All oh, right, okay. No, I'm thinking of the other one. Yeah, I actually had. Uh, no, the, go ahead. So, uh, Dread and Spite are, Spite being the second book of Pandemonium, are both great games as well. They sort of. When I was reading them, I was thinking, um, back in the old world of darkness, you had, a sort of dichotomy between the horror stories and the dark, grisly action stories. And if the new world of darkness can be said to have veered more towards the horror side for players who perhaps prefer the dark action stories, by dread, it's fantastic. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a good read. I mean, I read it and I was like, wow, this guy sounds like he wrote for White Wolf at one point or has the flavor at least of White Wolf in there or the world of darkness setting. So something to look at. I don't remember the, white, the website offhand. Sorry about that. Uh, next question for Mr. Zorlak. Uh if you were a sci-fi geek, which side would you jump in on in the fight? The Star Trek side or the Star Wars side? I am a sci-fi geek, but um, <laughs> I traditionally don't jump in on either side. Um, but so, if you're gonna make if you're gonna make me choose, um, uh-huh. I'm gonna go for I'm gonna go for Star Trek mm. simply because there's there's got to be more to life than blowing up a Death Star, only to see another death, that your dad's gone and built another one twice as... Twice the size. You know, yeah. that's, that's... That's just never getting out of his shadow, really. Yeah, what am I going to do? What are you going to do if I blow this one up, Dad? You're going to build one that's the size of a sun. Yeah. Yeah, millions of dollar technology, but yet they can't, they can't design any handrails for those ramps and everything, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they... Well, they couldn't put a vent. They put, couldn't put a grill over the vent on the first one. Well, you know, they're... what's the deal with that? That that must be like twenty cents of metal. Could have just prevented that whole exactly. thing being blown. Well, Darth Vader needed a new uh, mask. I don't know. Have you guys have you seen Death Star Repairman? <laughs> no, I have not. No, it's a Star Wars. It's a Star Wars fan movie. You may you probably heard of Troops, yeah? The yes. uh, the, the Stormtrooper yeah. version of Cops. Yeah, yeah. Well, this kind of this spawned a whole slew of these things, and one of them is you can you can find it. You, you know, I'm sure you can find it online. It's called Death Star Repairman. It is hysterical, and it shows the real reason why the Death Star exploded, <laughs> and it's not Luke Skywalker. Let me tell you that. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. Thanks, Mark. I'll, I'll be tracking that down after the show. Well, if, yeah. if you like, if you like Star Wars spoofs, you have to check out uh, Chad Vader, Day Shift Manager. <laughs> it's supposedly, it's supposedly Darth Vader's brother Chad wearing the same outfit because Darth Vader got a new outfit and gave it to him, and he fell down a hill when on his bicycle and fell into a thing of lava, and they had to, you know, whatever. But he actually works at a he works at a supermarket called Empire Market, and he's like the manager. And there's all these crazy things going on in the supermarket. It's actually fantastic. They were on Good Morning America, and they were supposed to do a whole TV show with it, but I think it actually kind of tanked out on ABC. So it was. It's funny for YouTube. Check it out. Yeah. Okay. Cool. 
All right, and uh, Zorlock's uh, last question. Why do you love role-playing games so much? I think I think the main reason is uh, when you write a role-playing game, you're not writing a thing that's finished when you are. You know, if, if you write a novel, then that's the story told when you finish writing and finish revising. When you write a role-playing game, the story's just begun once you finish, because it doesn't actually become anything until it's played and for it to be played you need other people you need to get other people involved and other people playing and they throw in their ideas and what it ends up as is the whole being very much greater than the sum of any parts sounds like uh, so, that's a good idea yeah I agree I, I, I love the idea that with role playing games that uh once it's out there, uh, the, the the gamers they take ownership of it completely, you know. And oh, it says here on page fifteen, yeah. they were ripped on like that. You know, next bit, yep, I prefer <laughs> that. Yep, you know. And you, I don't think there's a gamer in the world who hasn't taken the game they're playing and totally refitted it to to suit their group. And uh, yeah, that, I think that's how it should be. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Use what you like. Ditch what you don't. Make it your own. After all, I think that's you the bought the books. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, I think that's, I've, always, I've said this a couple of times on the show, I think that's the biggest strength uh, of the of the new world of darkness over the old. You know, we don't go in for one's better than the other too much on darker days, but where I think the new world of darkness has succeeded is that it has, it has made the toolkit approach explicit. Uh, it actually says it. Toolkit. Don't like it, don't use it. And with old world of darkness, we all used to do that, um, but the books didn't so much, they didn't very often come out and say it. And I think that's a lesson that the New World of Darkness line has learned very well in that it's, you know, stamped bright and bold. This comes unassembled. Build it yourself. Which I thought was a great move. Cool. Definitely. Well, we'll move on to Mr. Uh, Boggan Knight, who has uh, won the competition so far for the strangest places to be listening to Darker Days podcast. As we've heard. As yes. He's, he's, <laughs> still holds the title. Still this idea. I hope you got those fire ants, uh, zombie fire ants. Did you, you send those out more? Uh, yep, yep. Well, super. Check on to his first checks question. In checks in the mail. Yeah, he's. <laughs> Bogonite has three questions, uh, and his first one kind of echoes a little bit what Jabbity asked just now. Um, he asks, given your involvement with Hunters, do uh, what sort of game do you prefer to run for the genre? Do you prefer the homegrown heroes or the more organized approach? Uh, I guess, you know, what level of compact or conspiracy or individual are, are, do you most feel drawn to and, uh, and why? To be honest, I, I tend to get pulled to the extremes because I had a hand in designing and developing and bringing to life three of the conspiracies, one in each of the one in each of the source books except Night Stalker. So obviously if I if I didn't get excited by that sort of globe trotting, you have powers, mm. how much of a monster does that make you sort of thing, then I wouldn't have wrote them. But on the other hand, there's an awful lot to be said for a group of just normal people who meet in a pub, in a coffee shop, wherever trade stories and go out to try and see if what they've encountered is real and if it is, if they can do something about it. And I think some of that ethos was really reflected in the horror recognition guide as being just the collected notes of a single cell. Hmm. 
So, you know, I very much swing, swing to the extremes. I'm actually a bit less enamored of the whole compact side of things hanging in the middle there, but I think it's just because I've not really run a game where everyone's a member of a compact and we're seeing the benefits of that. I'm sure once I run that, that'll be thrown into stark relief nice. against the other types. Okay, okay. Um, he also asked, given the relative power levels of the other templates, uh, what is the attraction of playing a hunter? Um, you know, do you uh, do you prefer a nihilistic game where survival is its own reward? Uh, I guess what Bogganite's getting at here a little bit is that uh, hunters maybe come across as a little less powerful than many of the other major major templates. Well, yeah, they do, and they are individually. Mm. But that's the key, both both with um, the enhanced teamwork mechanics of the tactics and with the nature of the hunt itself. One person may fall, one person will fall quite frequently. Um, again, just flashing back to the horror recognition guide, there's the story of Andy in there, who falls pretty hard. I won't spoil it for those of you who haven't read it. Mm. But because he falls, someone else takes up the cause. Humans yeah. individually can't stand up to the night. Humanity, when it takes up the vigil, that is where the strength lies. So it's, right. it's all in this tiny moments of just clawing back enough to keep hanging on for one more night. Because if you do that, then when you're finally exhausted, there'll be room for someone else. Cool. It's yeah, I, I, dogged. Chuck said something persistent. similar, I think, the other week. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, I like the the the, the, the uh, uh, comparison between human and humanity. Yeah, definitely. Oh yeah. Um, and lastly, lastly, Bogganite wants to know um, what antagonist holds the most special place in your heart. And uh, he says, given your work on Slasher, he's a little bit afraid of your answer. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> spill it. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't actually get to write much of the actual slasher stuff in slasher I was much more focused on the uh, Vanguard serial crimes unit the conspiracy right. in there so um, I'm actually going to turn away from Hunter entirely and look to Geist and the Cabaroy in Geist mm. who are who for those of you who haven't read it deep down in the underworld you come to realms that have these laws written as part of the realm and the Kerberoi are the embodiment of those laws. And if you break one, they will punish you. They are alien, they are scary. Nobody even knows if they were ever human. Unlike Geists, which were just presumably human ghosts who've lost enough of their identity to become archetypes, the Kerberoi could have been there since before humanity. Since possibly even since before there was an underworld. Who knows? But they are big, scary, and alien. And um, there's one in the book which is, in effect, a machine for making smaller copies of itself. And it just puts together these strange hybrids of flesh and clockwork that scuttle around the Dominion and hunt down those who break its laws. And cool. it's... Often, if you take a look at the 
power level of the Sinisers, it can look like they're strong compared to other supernaturals. But when you realize that when they go down into the Dark Dominions, they're going to be breaking the laws, it's pretty much in the nature of a Sin Eater to see a law and say, nope, I'm going to break that one. The Cobaroi <laughs> will spread them. <clears throat> Cool. That's a great idea. I love the idea of, of these, you know, these pre-human uh, entities. You know, I mentioned before a lot of love for Wraith, so I love the echoes uh, that, that it has there of, of things like the Neverborn and the Onceborn and what have you. Yeah, great stuff. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Let's move on to the next set of questions now. Uh, this is submitted by one of our newer users, uh, Ravina, Ravenna. Hi, Mark, how would you say that one, you think? Mark? Well, it looks like Skype has done it again. Mark has popped out on us again. Mark? I have. Yeah, that's the wonderful world of Skype there. Well, we'll just uh, moment of... Yeah, we'll, we'll wait until Mark gets things all settled and gets back to the uh, the game here. First question she Yeah, my, my question's up next as well. Oh, there's Mark. Oh, there we go. Yeah. I have no idea what's going on. It might well be my connection this end. So uh, apologies to our listeners... Uh, uh, my my Skype doth suck. There you go. Does sucketh? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she wants to know Ravenna. I would I would say Ravenna. Ravenna, yeah. All right, we'll go with Ravenna, yeah. uh, who has a very cool looking picture on Twitter. By the way, if you happen to look at my profile and see her on there, definitely worth looking. Okay. At. Uh, she wants to know. Uh, well, you obviously what new books you're working on, and if you could say anything about the new book you're working on. I'm. Um... I'm in a strange place where I'm not actually working on anything that hasn't been announced. Um, obviously, just very recently, before the recording of this, uh, there was Night Horrors Wolf Spain came out. The Night Horrors book for Werewolf, packed full of um, NPCs, antagonists, um, spirits, and stranger things besides. Um, I think the next couple of things to be coming out are going to be out at about the same time. There's Signs of the Moon for Werewolf, which is the book covering the auspices. Um, I got to do a mm -hmm. rather meaty chapter on the Elidoth for that. Anyone who's seen Tribes of the Moon, it's we're kind of veering a little from that format, but... I'm not sure how much I can say before the rabid weasels break through that door. Oh, God, they've got the chainsaw. <laughs> um, Boy. Contemporaneously, I think, but, you know, of course, release schedules are subject to change at the whims of fate. So about the same time should be the Book of the Dead, which is, yeah. as said, the Book of the Dead. The so lots of stuff on ghosts and the underworld and um, I know a lot's been made of the fact that it's um, mostly World of Darkness with a geist slant in the same way that say Shadows of the UK could be said to be a World of Darkness book with a werewolf slant but um, the chapter I worked on has a lot of geist specific stuff. You are definitely getting a new manifestation and a new key and um, oh. if you've seen the rise-ups for Manifestations, you will have an idea of just how much stuff that is. I can't give any details on what that might be, but um, there's plenty of stuff for other supernaturals who can enter the underworld and for 
those who can't normally and just get a bit lost. <laughs> Excellent. That's one to grab and steal from my beyond... game, I think. Oh, yes. And um, beyond that, we have uh, World of Darkness Mirrors, about which, again, I really don't think I can say too much. Not a problem. We understand. No, we got we got teased we got teased very heavily uh, by Chuck with that one uh, the other show. So yeah. it's looking forward it's, to that one um, a lot. I th I think the best thing I can say is it's not really like anything that's come out for the World of Darkness so far. We've huh. seen sort of echoes of what it might be in other books, but uh, now we're getting the bomb. Hmm. Ah, cool, 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 cool. Looking forward to picking that up. Her, her last question for you would be uh, who's the most fun person to work with when writing at White Wolf and why did you pick that person? Oh god I hate this because <laughs> it's, it's even I worse than asking what your favorite game is. <laughs> I can just tell a whole bunch of people who I've worked with before and hopefully in the future are going to be listening in and if I don't pick them they're going to stab me. But um, <laughs> I think since I can just tell you're going to press me for an answer anyway, I've, I've got uh -huh. to say Chuck. He's just... We get along really well. Um, all the discussions, all of the ideas. We tend, to, we tend to be on the same page before we even start working. And where we're not, it's very clear where we've sort of started splitting off from each other. So... Yeah, it's just it's just nice working with someone who is that like-minded. Cool, pretty sweet. Not not that yeah, you know it... I have any problem working with anyone else at all. I hasten to add, guys, I love no, you really. Quick, quick disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure everyone's a pleasure to work with, and you just you know you're not just saying Chuck's better than everyone else. You're just you know pointing out some things that you like. That's all. <laughs> and that was my politically correct answer for you. Indeed. Thank you. You're quite welcome. <laughs> we're going to go on to our next question, uh, which is submitted by some guy named Darker Days Mark. I don't know who that is. And no. <laughs> he wants to know, was the Unknown Armies a three-tier yeah. system as an inspiration when developing the three-tier system for Hunter the Vigil? I'm not sure if it was originally the inspiration for the three tiers, because I wasn't in on the early design meetings that led to the Bible, but um, certainly once we knew we were working on the three tiers, several of us who were writing it and who are familiar with Unknown Armies did sort of mention, yeah, this is rather close to the way Unknown Armies handles things. And it was nice knowing that there was a game out there which had sort of, I won't say already done it, because obviously we put our own up. Hunter-specific and World of Darkness-specific spin on it, but it's nice to know that it wasn't just something shot in the air as a grand experiment that probably wouldn't work, because there's something out there already that had tried it and worked. And worked, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. But it struck me, I'm, I'm, I meant to ask Chuck this last week, but I had this stupid flu and I forgot, so, you know. <laughs> but wow. it, it's, it, 
before I'd even heard of Unknown Armies, I was t- talking to a, a player in my mage game, and I'm, uh, we, we, we were getting ready to play mage, and he had not played mage before, and I was talking to him about the different ways to do it. I said, well, you can focus on just individual couple of mages in their neighborhood, or you can have a small cabal that works here uh, on, on a, a local area, or you could go worldwide or in, you know, cosmic uh, uh, goings on. And he's like, oh, right, well, Unknown Armies does that. And then actually calls it, you know, A, B, and C. Actually has a individual local yeah. and, and cosmic. Oh, wow. Oh, okay, right. Uh, so there's a game that, that has, has codified it as opposed to just being something that storytellers cobbled together. So it was really interesting, yeah, to see it uh, pop up again in yeah, Hunter. It was, um, it's great yeah, most of the Unknown Armies I've played was actually in the first edition where those divisions existed, but they weren't called out. And I think that did actually caused some problems, certainly for some of the people I was playing with at the time, trying to wrap their heads around what level we were operating at. So I'm glad yeah. they codified it there, and I'm glad we had a chance to do that in Hunter as well. Out of, out of. I guess Mark is having Skype problems again, because it sounds like he just chewed his microphone. Hopefully he'll be back with us yeah. in a moment. He's having Skype problems, or he's turning into a weird chicken. <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> Skype is not loving you tonight, Mark. It's not. It's not. No. <laughs> Weird <We're> chick. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Darker Days, Mark, for that question. Submit any questions to Mark at darkerdaysradio@gmail.com. <laughs> I'm sure Mark will appreciate any emails from Darker Days, Mark. Yes, he will. <laughs> that would be quite funny. Mark, you want to get on to the uh, last set of big questions here from Mr. Beckett. Beckett, Beckett. Y- y- you can hear me again now, eh? Oh, yeah, we can. Okay. Fucking weird chicken. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. My microphone clearly dies, but I can I can hear you all completely, you know. God damn it, that guy's gone again. What the hell? Okay, Beckett. Um, Beckett had a whole bunch of questions here. You had um, yeah, now his opening one is an interesting one. If you could change any single thing about role-playing games, what would be the things you would consider? I think one of the things I'd consider really changing is a holdover from you know, the games of the 70s and 80s where a lot of the focus in each game is on beating people up, often as a precursor mm. to taking their stuff. So you'll see games where the primary focus is on investigation or on social manipulation, but because they're coming from this grand tradition of games where you beat people up and take their stuff, they still have these really rather detailed combat systems, and that, because there's these detailed systems there, if they work, it's actually more fun for the players to get involved with that system in many cases than to just go freeform. So I prefer I would much prefer if every game just lavished in the same attention on its sort of core feature as many games do on combat now. I mean, we're seeing that at present. A lot of sort of indie games are doing this explicitly. Um yeah. I'm not sure if you've seen anything using the gumshoe system. Gumshoe, I was just gonna mention trailer. gumshoe, yeah. Yeah, Trail of Cthulhu and so on. Cause those games this laser-like focus on investigation. And I would have loved if they'd actually done that with the first couple of editions of Call of Cthulhu. 
but you know. Yes. Vegas can't confuse us, and at least things are changing now, which is good. Indeed, indeed. It's nice to have the options now. Uh, but yeah, I know what you mean. Um, secondly, uh, this is a good one. What movie or book or song do you think has had the biggest inspiration for your gaming life, either designing or writing or playing? This this is a tough one because I can't really point to any one thing. You know, I I've got about six bookshelves in this flat full of books and movies and music, all of which has had some sort of influence somewhere. But I think I think one of the biggest culture shifts was um, the was actually the uh, culture novels by Ian M. Banks, uh, Banks science yeah. fiction series, where. Um, and one of the interesting things he does, he has artificial intelligences and seriously powerful, nearly godlike intelligences and aliens and all sorts of so, sort of modern science fiction tropes. But he writes them all as humans because it's all being processed through the mind of the human, that is, the reader. So there's no point calling out the differences. You know, it's like if you apply that to D&D, there's no point calling out the differences in elf psychology if you haven't already pointed out the similarities, because otherwise people are just going to yeah. play to those stereotypes. So instead, you always point out the similarities first, because that helps people get a hook on what they're doing, and then you move on to the differences. There's Good actually stuff, a, yeah. rather, there's a rather interesting Sorry, in um, Accession. Sorry, I know I'm rambling on here. <laughs> No, man, um, ramble away, ramble away. Accession has a cutaway scene where um, a guy who was part of what amounts to a successful Nazi faction is being made to relive um, disposing of all of the corpses of his political opponents. And this goes on for a few pages, and it's obviously a form of near torture. But it's not until the very last page that you where, you know, there's just a note about him flexing the spines along the back of his neck, and you think, hang on a minute, that guy's not no. human. And it's it's a sudden kicker that though things may look differently, they may even think differently, You, on some level, they will always be relatable in human terms. Yeah. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Um, Ian Banks recommended to... Uh all of our listeners, either as Ian Banks or with his more impenetrable pseudonym, Ian M. Banks. Hmm. Uh, uh, Beckett wants to know also... Sorry, go on. Just Beckett wants to know if he should get more shout-outs on a regular basis on the show. Uh, I can answer that one for you. The answer is no. You have enough as it is. Um, His next question, (laughs) he says, I don't mean mean the question to sound mean. Uh, He says, I just can't seem to find a better way to phrase it. He says, I don't actually have the book. I might be off base, but from nearly everyone I've ever heard speak about it, uh, it's awesome. And he's referring to Slasher. Um, Now, you said you didn't work so heavily across the board on that one, but he asks, when working on Slasher, would you say that it was was more fun than work for everybody involved? And not so much like everybody played around, but more that it was a really entertaining assignment? Yes. Yes, I would say that. Um... (laughs) There you go. And there's the answer. The way, thi- the way things were scheduled, <laughs> we'd um, just come off doing the Hunter Core and then straight into Witchfinders. 
and then, woo, slasher. It's this break from doing a book. Even in the Hunter Core, we tried to call out different kinds of monsters, you know, shout-outs to Promethean and Changeling, but a lot of the antagonists ended up being the big three, you know, the vampires, werewolves, and mages. So it was just nice to have that break in the middle of doing the source books for the big three to tackle something we hadn't done before. And I think everyone on the project just threw themselves at it like people possessed. Um, I know I got my bits of it done in a truly record time. And cool. the same can be said for many other people working on it. It's It was a real breath of fresh air getting to tackle something that was properly fresh for the world of darkness and hadn't really been seen before. So, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. it was a great deal of fun to do. Um, Excellent. My boss did wonder why I was coming in sleep-deprived every day, but <laughs> yeah, the price you pay. Yes. It's nicely on to his, uh, his next question. Uh, purely as a, as a what-if, um, what untapped resource would you tackle in the world of darkness that hasn't been done yet um, if you had a billion dollars and the desire to keep uh, working? Um, for example, uh, he mentions a game based on gremlins, uh, a game based on gargoyles, and he's called it Gargoyle the Rar, and I'm supposed to make a, a gargoyle noise here. So, Come on, Mark, uh, let's hear your best no. gargoyle. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Are you happy yeah. back? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, a game, maybe uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, The Concoction, for example. Is there a, an area that you think is, is an untapped vein of awesome that needs, that needs tapping? I don't, I don't think we've left many untapped veins of awesome, I must admit. I know mm. lots of people sort of clamor for mad science, but you can do that. Um, it's actually in one of the books for Promethean, there's a lot of resources for taking a look at fringe science and math and what would classically be termed horror movie mad science in the world of darkness and through a world of darkness lens. So I don't think we've actually that much that's original left to cover. I think we've covered some stuff briefly and it would benefit from having a full line devoted to it. And I'm actually just looking over at my bookshelf at my copy of Second Sight and mm. taking the psychics from that. Because, I mean, we have psychics as presented in Second Sight. We have some rules for them in Witchfinders, and there's the special teleinformatics used by the Vanguard unit in Slasher. But I think if we take the sort of Second Sight approach of strange, unnatural powers suddenly awakening outside initially of a character's control, then you can actually run with that in a number of ways that we've maybe not done with the other lines, because at that point, with your powers being out of your control, you're actually losing a small part of your agency and your protagonist and your role as a protagonist, because there's you, but there's also a part of you that is acting as the antagonist in the story. Um, right. Not get all you know literature wanky on you or anything like that. <laughs> um, so you know you're. It's um. It's a bit like the old wraith, and that part of you is working against part of you, and I think there's a great deal of potential there 
but it'd need to be absolutely awesome to really build on what was done with Second Sight rather than just being another version of, if you yeah, yeah. get what I'm saying. Indeed, indeed. Ah, interesting stuff. Um, the next question, uh, do you prefer gaming in a home-like setting, uh, in a gaming store, um, over the internet, or, or some other way? I mean, you're, you're actively gaming at the moment, I take it. Um, I don't actually have a game running at the moment, but I oh. just need to roll a few players you know, it, uh-huh. <laughs> it happens every so often. You know, you start you start projects and they take up all your time. But I'm sure it'll be a matter of weeks if that. Um, but when I do game, I'm, I vastly prefer to game in a home setting, in someone's yeah. home. Um, I'm not sure if that's just because certainly up here, I'm not sure how it is where you are, Mark. But in the UK, it's always seemed to me that there's much less of a tradition of gaming actually in gaming stores than there is in America. Mm. It's, it's quite rare, I think, here, yeah. Oh, is it? I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a local gaming store here that has that has a Wednesday night game, for example, uh, but that's it, you know? Uh, yeah. Um, a, lot, a lot of that is because the gaming stores are in city centres, whereas a lot of people live out in the suburbs and thus getting in to go to a game is a bit rarer. Whereas if you go to someone's house then obviously you're not about to destroy any stock if you get pizza in or you know yeah. if the host or indeed one of the play one of the players shows up and fancies cooking a meal even better i am um, indeed when i was at university i had a very successful mage game with a guy who went on or at least who would have went on to be a uh, professional chef and so we were always well fed and rather happy when that started going tasty yes <laughs> cool uh, nice. Um, stepping away now a little bit from from White Wolf, uh, are you? Do you play at all any D and D? Do you have a, a a favorite edition there? Um, I played. I think I think it was about five sessions of a third edition game, and face to face, it really didn't grab me. I'm not sure if it was the rules or the group, but I didn't really get into it more. But uh, the computer game Neverwinter Nights actually sold me on the a really good implementation of the third edition rules. Right. Yes, it does. Yeah. They certainly seem to work better for me with the computer running them rather than a human being. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, I've I've only managed one quick playtest of fourth edition, and I want to get it going more. It certainly seems. It seems like it gets the players more involved because you have things like you've got the miniatures, you've got the battle mats, the character sheets, power cards, um, a lot of stuff where you've got tactile elements, things for players to hold and fiddle with. When they're not taking an action, they can be judging what they're going to do next. And that, in some ways, is actually a throwback to Deadlands, which Mm. at the time, maybe it wasn't the flashiest or most streamlined of systems, but you know, it used all different shapes of dice, it used poker cards, poker chips, all that sort of thing, so there was always something on the table for people to be fiddling with and deciding, and it was very tactile, and it got people immersed in the game in a way which systems that just use, you know, dice, pen, and pencil sometimes don't. Definitely. I I think any game, you know, can can benefit 
No, sorry. Uh, any game can benefit from from props like that. Um, you know, I know, for example, in World of Darkness games, if the characters find something like a, a tome or an artifact or an item, I like to give out a little item card with a picture in the description and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, certainly uh, games that have, I suppose, you'd call it high production values, uh, they they can really get the players uh, involved because you know it's it's fun and it's nice and it's it's shiny. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, definitely. Um, another thing I've been toying with, I've not actually done this yet, is um, for a World of Darkness game printing out a sheet with um, various boxes, you know, like your health and power stat and using yeah. glass beads to track them. So rather than just ticking off check boxes, you're actively sliding the beads over. You can glance down to see roughly how much you have oh. remaining. That's a hell and thus, That's fun. It, it's, it's a bit more involved than just ticking off a box on a form. I had actually made up yeah, a sheet. I made up a sheet for my game involved with boxes, but I didn't even think about the beads. That's a that's an awesome idea, actually. That's quite good fun. I just I just want to steal someone else's beads, though. You know, I'd just be <laughs> too, 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 too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> get off my beads to get your own beads. <laughs> I have a real so, problem. Um, I can't go to without getting beads. You know, good to idea. <laughs> Must have beads. Like some zombie collecting influence. Only it's not brains. It's beads. Beads. I don't know if I'm just a dyslexic zombie. This is a really unsuccessful zombie. Beads. But you look good at the end of the day, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's the important thing. Um, yes. Uh, also, um, Beckett's asking, uh, does White Wolf have a close or existing relationship with um, companies, other gaming companies like Wizards of the Coast or Paizo or other quote-unquote competing companies? Um, he says he's heard that Paizo and Wizards of the Coast are, uh, are good friends, um, uh, despite the supposed uh, Pathfinder D&D spat, which I don't really believe ever actually happened. Um, and he was just wondering if, if White Wolf uh, had similar relationships with other companies, you know, maybe... He mentions the, the new or old developers of Shadowrun or something like that. Unfortunately, I'm really not in a position to answer that. I just, I'm a, as a writer, you're just a freelancer who contracts out to White Wolf on a game-by-game -game basis. And, mm. well, you get to know some of the developers as friends. You don't really get to know anyone sort of outside that circle. So I'm afraid I cannot answer that one um okay. someone like that's fair Ethan enough. or maybe eddie would be a better person to ask i think yeah so i mean are you you're basic you're based up in edinburgh full-time you've not been uh stationed out in the states working for white wolf over there and then and then come back or are you in other words your your work is is, is occurring entirely as it were virtually over the net yeah all all contact i have with people from White Wolf has been over email or the occasional phone call to resolve a problem. I've never been to, well, I've been to America, but um, only on holiday, no, only on yeah. vacation, I should say. I've mm. never been to the White Wolf offices. Um, the only other guy I know, the only other guys I know who freelance, uh, Woodingham and Aaron Dembski-Bowden, I've met both of them, but that's because they're British and... I happen to be in the same place as them for a con or just for a night out. Right, that's right. Cool. I think that's really cool. I think it's fantastic uh, that you can produce all this, you know, work and, and product for a company, and yet you never go there. So um, you've never met the people from White Wolf that actually own White Wolf. Well, the original White Wolf, I should say. Yeah, I've I've never met any of them. 
which is actually why listening to the Darker Days podcast here has been a bit interesting because it's um, hearing people like Chuck and Eddie hearing their voices for the very first time. Oh, wow. And I always oh, have wow, this moment cool. of culture shock. I always have this moment of culture shock. Holy shit, Chuck's American. <laughs> uh, excellent, excellent. Okay, here's a good one for you. Um, aliens tell you that the world is going to be destroyed in two days. You have one nuclear weapon. Which country gets it and why? Wow. <laughs> what a question, Beckett. Thanks. Um, so, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually be a bit of a killjoy on this one because. Um, for a project, and I'm not saying which one, it might be one I've mentioned, it might be one I've not, I've actually mm -hmm. done a bit of research on um, the efficiency and the effectiveness of nuclear weapons, and um, unless it was particularly big, one nuke ain't going to do much more than destroy maybe half of New York City. Oh, darn. And, and, when, you look at, <laughs> and when you look at the impacts that way, it's not particularly useful as a suicide weapon. If aliens have come all this way, they're not going to be deterred by a nuke. So, um... What if they were really small aliens? Much. I'm guessing it's just, you know, it's Maybe. just, you used to, you do it out of spite. <laughs> True. Yeah, you... Yeah, hell with it. Why not loose off a nuke? In which, <laughs> in which case, I'd, um... I'd give it to New Zealand, because they've never had one, and they don't want one. And as the saying goes... With assault rifles, the only person that's safe to have one is someone who doesn't want one. So, how will they yes. give the nuke to New Zealand? See what they do with it. It'll be entertaining, if nothing else. Hmm. Exactly. Cool. Um, he's got a couple more questions. He wants to know, uh, when are we getting a gangrel fighting style for claws? Do you have any input in that? Um, I've not ever actually worked for um, any never actually worked on any of the vampire books so I couldn't say for certain but um, I'm sure if there isn't one in the pipeline officially um, there's guidelines for coming up with fighting styles um, I believe there's a whole bunch in Armoury Reloaded so that could certainly be one place to start looking and um, if not there then Another book that's coming out that, again, I might have mentioned, I might have not, would contain the tools for making one. So, cool. can't guarantee okay. there'd be an official one, but there's definitely guidelines for putting your own together. Right. Okay. Um, and we're going to go with one more question from Beckett before I want to hand over to Vince, because I'm sure he's going to wrap up with one or two. Hmm. Um, he asks, would you prefer to be the last survivor in uh, a fast zombie movie like Dawn of the Dead, the remake, um, a, a slow zombie movie like Night of the Living Dead, or some kind of weird vampire apocalypse movie like I Am Legend? Probably um, the fast zombie apocalypse, you know, sort of Dawn of the Dead or 28 Days Later. Yeah. Um, yeah. You get an awful lot more exercise that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And cool. there's there's something about the fast zombies that don't have the same sense of crushing inevitability that the slow ones do. You know, a slow zombie apocalypse is very much these the slow march that eventually takes over the world. The fast zombies yeah. always tend to be a bit frenzied. 
they'll go after something if they see it, but then they'll lose interest. So you stand more chance of hiding from the fast zombies. Hmm, that's probably true, actually, yeah. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, okay, so uh, thanks for those answers, and thank you, Beckett, for your exhaustive list of questions, and apologies <laughs> for the uh, for the one or two that didn't make the cut. Um, <laughs> Vince, any more from you? Um Basically, I think we're going to do our usual question. I'm sure you've heard it many times since you've listened to us. You have to ask it, yes. You could be a household appliance. Which household appliance would you be and why? Coffee maker. (laughs) The the good old-fashioned drip coffee maker. You know, you load it up with grounds, you put some water in, you come back ten minutes later, and you have something fantastic that most people cannot live without. (laughs) You know, if... I wish I could say that the same were true for my books, but, you know, <laughs> some people might think that. Most probably won't. But, hey, I can dream. Mm. <laughs> All right. You know, at least I'm not saying I'm going to be an iPhone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, said, I, you know, I was like, household appliance. He's like, iPhone. I'm like, oh, okay, that, that works, I guess. I guess that's a household appliance. Yeah, there's... there's uh, not that I have anything against people with iPhones I just always have to take I just always have to take a second look when I see one just to make sure they're not molesting a hamster <laughs> you know just that look as they're stroking the screen there's something wrong with some of them they I'm don't have healthy. phones in their hands <laughs> uh, no I don't have I don't have an iPhone I only, only got suckered is, is it not is it not a big thing in the States? Over here in, in, in Britain, I mean, I, I moved back to England five years ago, and, and I discovered in my absence that people had just become texting mad, you know, mobile phone, cell phone mad. Uh, I, I guess, I don't know, is that a huge thing over there in the States, uh, Vince? Well, texting? Oh, yeah, of course, everybody does it, but the iPhone is only limited to AT&T here, so... Oh, okay, right. And AT&T, well, mm, sucks. Right, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's going to wrap up the questions. Uh, Stu, thank you for joining us this week on Darker Days, episode number 10. No problem. Thank you for having me. And if anyone wanted to get in contact with you, uh, do you have a public email or a public website, maybe a plug you want to give? Or... I have I have a whole lot. Um, oh. I have a website at zeropointinformation.com, which is a rather long site name, but, you know, zeropointinformation. Dot com. I can also be found on LiveJournal, on Twitter, on the RPGNet forums, on um, the White Wolf forums, and probably any other place you notice the name, maybe even including the Darker Days forums, as a digital raven. Um, That's it's you? you? And... <laughs> That's I know. No! <laughs> it's, it's like I've just taken the mask off, and it's the end of Scooby-Doo. <laughs> kids asking me to plug myself <laughs> um, any, anyone who's uh, wanting to drop me an email can also find me on digitalraven at gmail.com I'm sure that email address came as a shock to everyone very original <laughs> and uh, easy to remember alright folks good stuff we're going to wrap things up for this week this has been the Darker Days podcast so episode number 10 Steve Wilson, American Hero. Thanks for joining us. This is Vince signing off from Mark and Stu. Have a wonderful evening. Don't forget to listen to us, Darker Days Podcast, the unofficial, official Will of the Darkness podcast. Darker Days Radio at gmail.com and darkerdays.tk.
Genau. there mark no my skype has collapsed again and i'm gone once more <laughs> well <laughs> jesus the, the show where skype slew me three times twice three jesus christ <laughs> mark that's going to be your new name now is in darker days mark the were chicken the weird chicken the feared tribe of the pukaki <laughs> oh boy. Oh god. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know what he's talking about, do not Google that. Whatever you do, do not Google that term. Or, you know, ignore me. Yeah. Well, I remember they had a wrestler called the Bukaki Kid for the longest time. No one seemed to get it, though. <laughs> so, Mark, you were saying back in the show uh, you're going to be starting up your campaign again. Another week or so? Yeah. Um, during my hiatus, uh, one of the other players started up a and uh, d Pathfinder campaign. Um, and he's going to be shifting that off to a Friday. And uh, they're wrapping their Tuesday session on the 15th. And after that, Tuesdays are mine once more. So we'll be picking up uh, mid-plot where we left the uh, the characters and uh, delving them deep into, uh, into the depths of the Umbra. And yeah, kicking ass and having fun and uh, stealing ideas from Clive Barker. That's, that's Mage. <laughs> We can always get a wear chicken into your game now. I can now, yes. I'm, I'm <laughs> just cause for it too. That's correct. Did you? So uh, how, did, how did your prelude session go? Oh, Sorry, uh, it was yeah, it was uh, really good. Actually, I like I like I was saying last episode. I'm basing my whole uh, story off of uh, Supernatural, the TV show. I know you haven't really take the, took taken a look at it, but you watched that at I'm all still? That. I caught a few episodes. Yeah. It's, um... Let's just call it research for Hunter. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great show. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a, a great toolbox for uh, Hunter. And I had my characters. I, I made it like the whole compact. I made my own compact called the Roadhouse for it. I made up the cult that they use on the show, uh, based off the uh, gun that's in the uh, armor reloaded, just with a few tweaks. Uh, I had the players start. I gathered them up actually at a strip club, all <laughs> places to start them at, and. I had one of the, uh, I had a vampire break the masquerade pretty much, and they had uh, had to follow it and hunt it down. And they found this old time hunter who uh, who was pretty much teaching them the ropes. And then one of the players uh, found out that uh, his family had been a long line of hunters, and they were keeping it a secret from him. And the vampires actually had wound up finding the house and uh, killing off his family. And he had to deal with that, you know, deal with that. And he had to deal with learning how his, uh, his family was a hunter. He found, like, a pa uh, safe in his house. He found, like, a, sa a panic room. He had, like, oh, cool. a, there was, like, a workshop. All these different little things. He found journals. And he found, uh, like, an old black blacksmithing uh, forge when they were making silver bullets. So he's just, he's just finding cool out. Cool idea. Yeah, he's just finding out that his folks were uh, hunting werewolves as well as vampires. I got little hints of uh, warlocks. I'm oh, sorry, warlocks, witches, and from the witchfinders guy because I've been using that heavily because it's been a hell of a lot of fun. And my stupid phone is ringing in the background, as you probably can hear. Uh, I wonder what that sound was. <laughs> yes, it's. Hey, yeah, Vince. Mark. Speaking of spe speaking of strip clubs, who, who's that in your sig now? Oh, that's um, 
Candace Michelle <laughs> from the WWE. <laughs> you like that one, huh? Well, it's, she's got a lot going for her. She has a lot of, uh, let's just call them talents. <laughs> she has a lot of assets, right? <laughs> the yeah. power oh, yeah. of my signature. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark, did you like that nice email that I sent you on <laughs> that wacky dream that I had? The, 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 the Ronald McDonald meets Freddy Krueger thing? No, 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 no. The one with the movie theater? Oh, the other one where, I, where, where I'm a disembodied voice in the movie theater. That was good. <laughs> yeah, apparently that I, since we were doing so many podcasts and I was focusing so hardcore on the show and getting things out and everything, that I actually had a dream that I was in a movie theater and uh, like all the movie theaters were named like one was Vampire, another one was uh, Werewolf, another one was Mage, and all the doors were locked, <laughs> apparently, except apparently for the Hunter one, which was open. And that theater was full, so I couldn't find a seat. So I come outside, I'm wandering around, then I hear over the loudspeaker, the following movies will be starting at the time. And I'm listening, and I'm like, man, I know that voice, that's Mark. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, what the hell's Mark doing here? (laughs) So, and then I had woken up because my alarm woke me up, but I had to tell Mark about that because I thought he'd have a riot laugh out of that one, so. Uh, That's funny. Yes. Oh yeah. Well, like yeah. I said, uh, from time time to time, I, I do moonlight as a theater announcer in the astral realms, so uh, pays good, you know. Yeah. Well, whatever you have though, to do to pass the time. Though you know, you're saying about the Hunter Theater. I yeah. dread to think what sort of snacks they tell in the lobby. <laughs> <laughs> I just see all these people. I walk inside and I just see all these people sitting there with like these thick glasses on, like the 3D glasses, and I'm like, oh shit, there's no seats. So I just walked out. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there must have been, what, 24 people in there? One for each compact and conspiracy? I mean, the other theatres had like 10 people in there. (laughs) Plenty of room. Oh, yeah. I was Anyway, back to (laughs) yeah, my campaign. I am putting all my notes up on our website. Once I get that all hacked out, I'll give you guys the address. But once again, you can get us darkerdays.tk and uh, wildgamesproductions.com is the radio network if you want to join up. You're showing you're listening, you have an idea, hit us up, hit Mark up at Mark, what's our address? Darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. How many times do I have to say it? My God. I just like hearing you this say it. This time you said it without pause. Yeah, I know, Mark. What's I did, up? I did. <laughs> I'll smell the show and I'll do a pause that lasts for two weeks. <laughs> Go ahead, do the pause. <laughs> All right, I think, uh, well, I got a nice, my wife just made a nice, uh, t- early today she made a nice big pot of chili in the crock pot, so. Oh, mm. yeah. Oh, good. So, uh, yeah, tasty, tasty. it's been going since, I don't know, sometime this morning, and now it's like, jeez, I don't know, 9 o'clock here, so I'll be. It's calling you. It's 2 a.m. here now, man, Jesus. So yeah. I'll, be, <laughs> I'll be jumping into that chili and, uh. Speaking of which, I remember Chuck said he wanted to be a crockpot. So uh. <laughs> that's right. That's his uh, Chuck his making chili. Yeah. All right, everybody, All let's right. get the hell out of here. Good night, folks. Good night, folks. Cheers, guys. <laughs>